Hello, my name is Paul Miles, and I'd like to welcome you to this Monash Perioperative Medicine podcast, in which Christine Ball interviews the authors of a very important, thought-provoking book exploring medical overdiagnosis, overtreatment, and why doctors sometimes cause more harm than healing, all through the lens of the modern Hippocratic Oath. Hello, welcome to the Monash Perioperative Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Ball, and with me today are the authors of an important new book called Hypocrisy. The authors are Professor Rochelle Bookbinder, a physician specialising in rheumatology, and Professor Ian Harris, an orthopaedic surgeon. Both are internationally known for their passionate commitment to evidence-based research, and I'd like to firstly invite them to tell you a little about themselves and their research. So if I could start with you, Rochelle. So my research has been mainly focused around uh, clinical trials and systematic reviews, trying to understand what treatments work. And in the last, I guess, 10, 15 years, these treatments have been ones that are usually well accepted into standard care, but have not been evaluated yet in clinical trials. And so unfortunately, most of the things that I study when um, evaluated against placebo or usual care turn out not to be uh, as beneficial as one's thought and often have harms. And then, then my research leads me to try and uh, de-implement these um, different treatments that range from surgery um, to medical treatments. Which, um, which must get you into quite a bit of uh, controversial discussions, I imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I try and just stick to the evidence, but um, there are certainly some um, parts of um, the medical establishment that um, don't like my research, shall we say, in a nice way. Okay, and, and uh, what about you? What's your research focused on? Um, I, my interests are very similar to Rochelle's and that's why we cross over a lot and actually do a lot of projects together. So I'm a clinical researcher um, and my focus though is um, the evidence behind surgical procedures um, largely. And I find similar things that there sometimes isn't very good evidence for a lot of the surgery we do. And when we do look at it, we find that it's not as effective as we once thought. Okay, so I can see how you two have common interests. How did you actually meet? Uh, well, I'll tell you. You always take this question. I always take this one, <laughs> yeah. Um, it was, I guess, inevitable that our paths would cross because, um, you know, both academics in the field of musculoskeletal health um, and our paths did cross, and I, I attended one or two uh, conferences and things where I saw Rochelle, and uh, and you know was very impressed uh, by her work and her uh, way of thinking, you know, very logical way of thinking, and we had similar backgrounds too, both doing um, sort of clinical epidemiology masters and both doing PhDs, and. Uh, it was when we were both attending the Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference in Oxford several years ago now. It was the second one, so I don't know how many years ago that was, um, that we were, we were both there and, and uh, found that we hit it off really well and um, uh, had a lot in common. Um, and since then, we've done a lot more uh, research projects together and now written this book together. 
Okay, so so let's get to the book um, and the the central tenet, which is the Hippocratic Oath. How how does that translate in modern times? I mean, we don't we don't take the Hippocratic Oath the way it was originally formed. So we use um, a, an adapted Hippocratic Oath, but if you look at the pledges in the oath, which uh, the each each chapter in our book is a pledge of the Hippocratic Oath, you can easily see that the principles really apply just as well today uh, as they did previously, uh, and that many of the pledges uh, could doctors are not really living up to that that pledge um, and there are and we wanted to we use that frame to describe you know what the problems with medicine are and why we're not really living up to that expectation or pledge okay, so, they, so, so i mean the the hippocratic oath talks about not over medicalizing people who are normal for example uh, talks about over treatment uh, talks about not medicalizing dying uh, and and birth uh, and talks about joy of healing and, and all of those things really rang true when we looked at the pledge we realized that it was actually perfect to convey the messages that we wanted to convey in the book yeah I think it is perfect and it comes across really well and there is a lot to discuss as a result who, who do you hope will read the book I think everybody. So it's pitched and worded in a way that um, anyone in the general public can read it because our aim, I guess, is to raise awareness of these problems and to, um, you know, a, a plea for sort of science-based medicine and better science literacy. And we want that amongst the general public as well as the medical community. So it's certainly pitched at the medical community and we want, and, you know, largely sort of doctors read it, but it's also pitched at the general public. Well, this podcast is pitched at perioperative medicine and I think the book really resonated with me because perioperative medicine encompasses all of the things that, uh, that you're discussing in the book. So, and just to focus on you for a minute, do you have any sense of how many surgical referrals do not result in an operation? Oh, not the sort of thing you could put a percentage on because it probably depends a lot on um, uh, the, the kind of condition that we're talking about. Um, but uh, surgeons spend uh, a lot of their time not operating on people, um, that's for sure. Um, and... Uh, uh, me in particular, unfortunately, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, but the, the problem is it varies between surgeons and you can get surgeons who are, you know, what we call aggressive or, uh, you know, more likely to operate on people at a lower threshold than surgeons like me who have perhaps a higher threshold and are less likely to um, jump to surgery and more likely to um, try other things. I presume it also depends on your referral base. I mean, Rochelle, I presume you refer patients to surgeons, but you would presumably have a fairly specific set of criteria for referring them, or or do you refer for opinions? I, I, I certainly refer for opinions, but I probably refer, I try and only refer patients who I think might benefit from surgery and sometimes I truly don't know and I want a second opinion. 
but I don't refer, I certainly don't refer people that I don't think need surgery. Um, and, and I'm often, I'm often a second opinion uh, and often give a different view to the surgeons. Uh, often patients I see have seen several surgeons already and have already got different opinions. Uh, so it's, it's often hard to disentangle that and, and, and work out exactly what the patient needs. Yeah, I think that's, that, <laughs> that is a problem. It's a problem for patients when so many doctors have conflicting, what yeah. they say is conflicting uh, opinions. Um, so in that sense, I would like to discuss the consent process, which is something I think about a lot as, a, as an anaesthetist. You know, every operation starts with us checking the patient in, checking the consent form, checking it's an accurate representation of what we're doing. And, and yet the consent has been given by the patient with the surgeon, who in many cases has a vested interest in performing the operation. Do you think we can improve the consent process? Oh, yeah. I think the consent process is focused on, on risk mitigation. It's, mm. it's focused on um, avoiding, you know, the patient suing for a complication or, or a bad outcome. Um, I mean, the consent process does say, you know, I've discussed uh, with the surgeon, you know, alternative ways of treating it, and this is what I've decided. But by and large, the structure of the consent and the focus of the consent is around, um, you know, making sure that it's it's permitted, it's consented to do this procedure. And there's not much of a focus on, on whether or not this procedure will actually benefit the patient. It, it doesn't say, you know, on the, on the balance of evidence, uh, you know, I will be better off with this procedure than not having it. Um, a lot of these simple things tend to get glossed over. People talk about, um, you know, how safe the procedure is and how they're going to do it, you know, um, through keyhole surgery or something and, and uh, how safe anesthetics are now and how good the post-op um, analgesia is and and uh, there's little, there's not as much focus on whether or not they should have it um, and it's it's the same problem with a lot of uh, surgery and and even the problem we're trying to mitigate with consent is you know being sued and things like that and a lot of being sued in surgery is around um, uh, complications and uh, uh, adverse outcomes and. And even in those cases, I've found, because I do a lot of medico-legal reporting, it's rarely raised that the patient should never have had the procedure in the first place. Um, you know, what's the, what's the uh, legal uh, stand there when they should never have had it? But that, that often just doesn't get raised. So, yeah, I don't know whether the consent process is the answer to that, though, or, or, or something else. So I think... I mean, one of the problems is that when there are complications and it's clear that the treatment was unnecessary <clears throat> and the patient sues, uh, and I've been involved in a recent case of vertebroplasty, which is injection on, in cement into the spine, uh, where the patient became paralysed because the, the um, cement leaked into the spinal canal. And uh, this is a woman in her mid-50s who now lives in a nursing home. And it was settled out of court. So even when things should never have been performed, those things don't reach the public, um, public eye. They're just settled out of court. 
and I think that's you know I'm, I'm just waiting for one of those cases to hit the public so people can appreciate that that this treatment actually has significant harms the other the other problem I just wanted to raise in terms of consent is that if you look at patient information on even on the internet for things like arthroscopy um, or shoulder surgery uh, and and if you look at uh, websites of uh, doctors who perform this procedure it's all about the the benefits and not much about the risks and and in one study that we did there was not a single mention that the procedure was controversial or that there were there was perhaps evidence that showed that the benefits weren't any better than placebo. So it's not just the consent process, it's everything leading up to the consent process and the information that patients also receive, which is often biased towards overestimating the benefits and un underestimating the harms without consideration of whether other things may be better, as Ian says. It, it's hard to see a way through this. You know, it's all, <laughs> it all seems like a lot of bad information for patients. But um, I guess with the perioperative clinics, we're trying to provide multidisciplinary care. And, and in the public hospitals, at least, we can bring the patients in and have meaningful discussions with them. And we do, we do have complex clinics at the Alfred, where I work, where patients can come in and discuss with the whole team about whether their surgery is necessary. But but that's often really big operations. And the sort of things you're talking about, like knee arthroscopies, they often happen in private and, you know, there's just one surgeon involved and there's something intrinsically wrong with the whole system that that's how it works and that we don't have a more multidisciplinary process that leads people to surgery. But I don't know if either of you have any solutions. Oh, to <laughs> I have a strong opinion on that, yeah, because... You know, I've been around long enough to see changes in other areas of medicine. And I think probably um, a good example, although I think there's lots of examples now, of multidisciplinary care making care better and, and more standardised is in the area of cancer care. Because when I did my uh, training, um, if you had cancer, you either went to see, you were referred to see a surgeon, you know, who operated on you, or you were referred to a radiation oncologist who gave you radiation or you were referred to an oncologist who gave you drugs and 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 sometimes that people would refer in between but um it, it the patients weren't seen by this sort of multidisciplinary team and even it's not just necessarily multidisciplinary one thing i noticed is in the department meetings we started these uh, x-ray meetings in our orthopedic department when i got back from the states and having the whole department sort of contribute to how a patient should be managed was a great sort of leveler and it and it stopped these sort of aberrant you know single surgeons going off on tangents doing things themselves a little bit and i think it it made for much better care um but what you said is right in the private sector there's still single surgeons who often don't work in a big uh, you know, public hospital where they attend these sort of meetings with other surgeons and other uh, healthcare professionals. And they just tend to get these ideas in their head and they go off on a little bit of a tangent. And, um, and I think that's a problem. It's a problem with the way medicine's practiced. And I try to, to push this for the management of back pain because when 
because uh, I know there's surgeons out there who are operating and doing fusions on people for for chronic low back pain, particularly when it's sometimes complicated by, you know, workers' compensation issues and things that are really, you know, there's a lot of psychosocial factors going on and a fusion isn't going to help this person. But they've just seen that surgeon and that's, that's what that surgeon does. Whereas if that patient had gone to a team that involved, you know, perhaps a, a, a pain management specialist and, a, you know, a, a physio and a, another physician and a surgeon, they probably would have got something a little bit more, you know, moderate and sensible and probably uh, a, a bit better advice. Not, not necessarily, but they probably would have avoided surgery at least. Well, um, that, that, there is empirical evidence for that. And we write about a, a, a study that I was involved with in Brazil where people, consecutive people who were offered surgery, spinal surgery in private, were offered a multidisciplinary assessment in a public hospital and about 60% of people did not proceed to surgery and the outcome at the end of one year was the same in terms of whether if they had surgery or they didn't have surgery, they were just the same in a year. Uh, and importantly, about half of the diagnoses were different to the diagnoses that, that were um, promoted by the private surgeons suggesting that people needed surgery. And some of the diagnoses weren't even about back pain, they were chronic widespread pain. <laughs> so you really couldn't understand why they were even being offered surgery. So I think there's also empirical evidence for what you're saying, Ian, that, that, and, and Chris, that the multidisciplinary approach is, is a better method if we're thinking about improving health. Yeah, um, and back pain is, as you say, one of the chapters in the book that I think is really, really important. And, and it, it's a frustrating area for all of us involved in, in healthcare. Back pain seems to be such a huge problem. And then there are patients, of course, who are convinced that surgery is the only, only possible outcome. And they're always going to find a surgeon that will, you know, some will go to extraordinary lengths to find a surgeon to, to operate on them. Um, uh, so anyway, just to move on from that area, Let's assume we're in the preoperative clinic now where we are proceeding with a necessary and useful operation. We do a number of tests on all our patients uh, for various reasons, blood tests, ECGs, and we try to make them useful. We try to make it evidence-based what we do. But at the public hospital, we see a lot of patients who have neglected their health for lots of reasons. And this is a, a point of capture in the health system where we can help them with their general health. Now, you talk a lot about unnecessary testing in the in your book as well and I wonder what what about in this context where, where we've got patients who are not regular attenders of healthcare facilities and now we've got a moment what, what should we be doing for these people so I think I think that that situation is similar to to the opportunity to talk about the person's general health when they go to the GP and, and so often you know, patients that don't go to the GP very often, that is a good opportunity to talk about weight and smoking and, and, and those lifestyle factors. So I think that's totally reasonable. Uh, and it sounds like you're thoughtful about which tests you're, or you're requesting and, and that there's a reason behind the testing. I mean, in most instances, no, in, not most, but we write about in the book, um, people who are in hospital who 
do and any general practice and and specialists who just do batteries of tests without really having a clear idea about why they're doing it and we all learned in medical school about pretest probabilities uh, and 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 then we just forgotten it and do a barrage of tests and sometimes it's much easier to do the test than talk to the patient i guess but if you do 10 tests on average one will be abnormal uh, and then that can lead you down other rabbit holes uh, and there are plenty of examples of that as in pre-operative care as well where patients have come in for one operation and before you know it they're having other operations so i've certainly seen that ian have you got anything you want to add on that Oh, no, no. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, so I think we've talked about back pain, which, which I think is an important area in your book. Caesarean sections are another area that you cover, and we have very high rates of caesarean section in Australia, far in excess of the recommendations of the WHO. Um, but we're quite accepting of the medicalisation of childbirth, I think, in Australia. And we're very nervous when we read about deaths in the community from home births. There was a very public discussion of one recently about a woman who died at home in the care of two midwives. And, and as an anaesthetist, you know, I find that a terrifying scenario <laughs> to be faced with somebody dying at home. Um, do you think that the high Caesar rates and inevitable result of us becoming more risk averse as we become in first world countries do you think we are risk averse i don't think it's inevitable i think it is um a part of this risk averse mentality um and certainly you know in other aspects of medicine defensive medicine is a contributing factor to over treatment um, but it's, it's not inevitable. Um, it's just a reflection of our overestimation of the benefits and underestimation of the harms of what we do. And um, we, we document that pretty well in the book. Um, people don't think about the downsides of caesarean sections and there's clear downsides of having a caesarean section compared to a, uh, a vaginal birth. And um, it's just not taken into account because we have this mentality that... Um, Oh, we'd better just do it because, you know, if, if ever we're in doubt, it's this sort of grey zone. So clearly there's going to be cases where a caesarean section, you know, is, is, is beneficial. The probability says they're beneficial and, and, it, and it works very well. Um, but clearly there's cases where it's eh, maybe not and it's this sort of grey zone. And it's the same thing with surgery in general. I find that whenever we're not really sure, there's a little bit of uncertainty. And unfortunately, that happens a lot we tend to say, well, we better just do it. And that way we, we're at least safe. Well, we, not necessarily. You may actually be making things worse. Um, I, I don't know why we always just land on the side of intervening, thinking that it's better. Um, I don't know whatever happened to the default being to assume that things aren't better until proven better. We just tend to think that things are better until they're proven not to be. Do you think that's inherent in our training, that we are, we're not taught to say we don't know what to do? Yeah, I think, I think that's one of the problems. And we're also not really, we're not really taught in a very scientific way. And I in particular, um, and surgeons still are taught in an apprenticeship type of model where you turn up and you see what other people do. 
and this is probably true in a lot of fields of medicine as well. You know, you see that this is the drug you prescribe for this, and this is what you do, and this is how you manage it. And so that's what I'm going to do, you know, without really um, properly weighing up the evidence or questioning current practice. Um, there's not enough of that goes on. I think, but I, th I, mean, I think it's changing. And certainly when I was a registrar, we were, we were invited to ask questions and often you'd say, well, what's the evidence for this? Why are you using this drug? And usually the answer would be, well, why don't you go and find out and bring it back at the next meeting? So it was, it was sort of always more work to ask the question, but you really learnt a lot about the fact that a lot of things that we were doing were based on thin air, <laughs> weren't actually based on things. One of the first projects I did in Clinepi was look at the, what, what's the evidence that for Plaquenil in lupus? And we were all taught that you use it um, to prevent flares. And so when I went back and looked, it was based uh, on a sentence in a book by a well-known rheumatologist who, you know, case series of nine patients who we put on Plaquenil and they all were doing pretty well. And, and that was the actual sole basis of this worldwide um, treatment recommendation to use Plaquenil for all patients with lupus. Uh, and so eventually after about, I think another 10 or 15 years, they finally did a study where they withdrew the drug from half the people and continued it in the other half and found in fact that it did reduce flares. Uh, so that was that was a happy ending, but, but often that's not the case when you then go back and try and work out whether it's really the right thing to do. Uh, so that was, that was a really clear thing that has always stuck in my mind, um, that, that lots of things that we do uh, don't have a strong foundation in science. It's really interesting. I mean, undoing things, as you say, undoing standard practice is, is really quite complex. I mean, because it's not just uh, what we're used to doing, it's what people are seeing us do and therefore taking into their own practices as well. And medical training so long now, there's so much for people to learn. And uh, so how, how are we going to teach them to do research as well as do their eight years of surgical training and fill their log books with all these operations they have to learn how to do? Well, they don't have to do research, but they've certainly got to understand it. I think it's just one of those minimum requirements. I mean, you can't be making decisions on uh, treatments for patients without understanding the evidence for those treatments. It's just, it's just something that we, we have to do. It's not easy. Um, you know, I'm still learning how to appraise evidence and, and how to, you know, sort out scientifically the wheat from the chaff. It, I'm still doing it. I've been doing it almost my whole career. It's not easy, but you've got to do better than we are now. I, I agree with Rochelle, things are much better than they were, um, but that doesn't mean they're perfect. And I think everyone needs to keep doing it too. And, and when I was in Canada, we all specialist trainees had to do introduction to clinical epidemiology which was basically a course in critical appraisal. So critical, how do you read an article about treatment? How do you read an article about a new test? How do you read an article about causation? Uh, and that was a, a prerequisite uh, in their training. Uh, and I think that everybody should at least do one Cochrane review. It's not that difficult. They can be involved in a group. Uh, and that really teaches you the fundamental principles in a really easy way 
recipe checklist type way and, and even just understanding those basic things I think would, would dramatically uh, help the science literacy of, of the medical profession and, help, and other healthcare practitioners as well. So we are seeing more people um, in our specialty at least, you know, doing further degrees, doing masters in epidemiology, those sort of things. But what about, should we be introducing more of this in medical school or where, where do you think we should be teaching this? I think what happens is, so it's taught in medical schools. I've taught it in third years and in final years and they have to do some like hands-on work. And then they hit the hospitals in the intern year and suddenly they're, they, everything goes out the window and they're ordering the battery of tests that, that their um, consultant or registrar will expect them to have at the ready. And so they forget a lot of the evidence-based principles. And, and so I think that it's definitely something that we should be teaching uh, after medical school. It's not, shouldn't end at medical school, definitely during um, internship, uh, residency, I think would be an ideal opportunity to, to offer it at that point. Um, and then I think people need to renew it. <laughs> you know, at the moment our CME is based on how many conferences you attended for how many hours and you've done an audit, but it doesn't actually delve into whether you understand the, the scientific principles of what you do every day. Um, at the moment, we're in the middle, well, hopefully towards the end of a pandemic, which has, I think, really challenged health literacy. Even the most informed medical practitioners coming out with some really strange statements. And there's a huge amount of observational data being collected. Um, how are we going to get through, how, how is science going to survive this pandemic? I feel, I feel like there's, there's problems being created by it. No, I don't, I, I, I don't think it's changed. There's always, it's always been hard, um, and maybe it should be hard, for science to, to sort of take the upper hand. And it's always been battling against people who kind of don't understand it properly or, you know, misinterpret it. Um, you know, maybe through, you know, for whatever reason. I think that's always been the case. That's been the case for, you know, hundreds of years. And I think it's going to be the case in hundreds of years time. Um, and, and I think it's just how we, you know, how we manage it. And we have to be, you know, level-headed and, you know, plodding and boring in a way and just, you know, continually just, you know, refute misinformation, put out the correct information, don't make it personal, um, you know, keep the, the, the vitriol out of it and just, you know, maintain a, a sort of steady way of conveying information. And, and people like, um, you know, Anthony Fauci and, uh, and, and others have, have been doing that. You know, they haven't taken the bait, they haven't railed against, um, uh, you know, the, the anti-vaxxers or whoever, they've just said, you know, well, you know, this is the evidence and this is what we have to do. And um, yeah, we always have to, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's just the way of the world. Um, you know, we, we have to sell a little bit what we do. You know, we have to sell science as a, as a better way of doing it. We have to make people understand it better. Um, and there's always, I think there's always going to be an issue with science literacy and, and, and just sort of the misinformation that's out there. And I think things are improving. I'm, it's a really exciting time as a, 
clinical epidemiologist and researcher. Uh, I, I'm involved in national living guidelines for, for inflammatory arthritis and, and we've developed a guideline for COVID vaccination for people with immuno, on immunosuppressant drugs in our diseases. We, we just updated it last week. We've added a recommendation regarding um, a third um, dose for the initial course. And it's exciting to see the evidence as it's unfolding. And, and you know, the observational evidence has, has helped us because we haven't had the RCTs and we still don't obviously have long-term data, but it's constantly evolving and, and we're evolving with it. So we, we've got new methods for trying to um, understand and synthesize the evidence in real time and then update the guidance in real time um, to the clinicians at the coalface. Um, the problem is getting the clinicians to the, to the evidence, I think, and, and, and getting the consumers to the evidence. And so we're working on things like decision aids and algorithms and, and getting the consumers to write their summaries of the panel discussions to try and, try and bridge that gap between getting the evidence, synthesising the evidence, developing the recommendation and then bringing it and, and using it in our everyday practice. And, and one of the things that I found that is that we have lots of panels going of clinicians who don't have an, a, a background in evidence uh, and they're just, they just love it. They're learning so much. We're teaching them about evidence, about how you grade the certainty of evidence. We're teaching them about the evidence to decision framework. And they're, they're, they're actually learning as they're involved in the panels. And, and the more people that we can involve in the panels, the more educated our clinicians will be and, and they'll, they'll carry that on with their everyday clinical practice. And it's just been fantastic to see their enthusiasm and their questions that they ask. And, it, you know, they, they, want, they want this information. They want to learn about how to, how to um, put the evidence into their everyday practice. And if we can replicate that across many guidelines, across many topics, I think that that might be a really good way forward. That's great, because that's certainly been my experience too, that in, in my profession, checklists, guidelines, all of those things have really multiplied throughout this pandemic and obviously um, evolved very quickly. Uh, and it has been really fun to be part of them and to see people embracing those sort of um, guidelines as to in, into their practice because anaesthetists have been very reluctant I think to be see guidelines as anything other than instructions for how they should behave and and they want to think their own practice their own individual practice is better so that's that's a great positive thing that you're saying and that I'm saying from the pandemic um, what other positives can we bring from this from your book here what other um, good things do you think are going to happen or hope will happen in the future? Um, look, I, I think overall things are getting better. When I look at the uh, doctors out there, I see a big difference between the doctors my age and older and the younger, you know, the newer doctors that are coming through. There's a definite difference in the, the way they think about things, um, their, their scepticism, their, you know, scientific approach to things. So, so I think overall th things are getting better. What other positives are there? I, th I think that there's increased awareness of 
too much medicine of overtreatment and overdiagnosis of in our and our bias towards treatment. I think that the the message of that is getting out. A lot of journals have picked it up. There's worldwide organisations and in Australia in particular um, are at the forefront of this kind of thing. Um, you know, and I think as the message gets out, things will improve. One of the reasons we wrote the book was that the message isn't quite out there among the general population and their expectations are more medicine is better. Um, they don't get the segue between a test and harm. They think more information must be better the more I know about my body. And so these misconceptions really we need to really fight against and, and we need to educate and we need to bring everybody along with us, including patients and, and the public. And I think that's one of the most difficult challenges um, because we've been feeding them over medicine and now we're, we're trying to reverse that. Uh, and so their expectations, you know, the whole society, I think, is very con you know, uh, consumer driven and, and wants stuff and, and thinks that we can live forever with perfect quality of life. And, and, we, and medicine's part of that, um, that health system belief, I think, and we have to really try and um, educate the public, even just to be a little bit more sceptical, to, to be able to ask questions of their doctors about alternatives and risks, uh, and what if I do nothing? And the other thing that we really need to do is doctors need to stop having to do something uh, and understand that just a good explanation, advice, support, empathy might be the best medicine for, for that particular patient. So I think those are two things that, that I would really want to achieve before I go. Yeah, and I guess the, the support is the important thing, isn't it? I mean, we talk about in advanced care planning, you know, when we talk to patients about do they need this operation at the end of their life, we try and emphasise the message that not operating is not doing nothing. It will, you will still be provided with care. So I guess we need that message across the board that not operating and not doing tests doesn't mean we don't provide patient care. Exactly. Yeah, a very important message because a lot of surgeons see not treating as, uh, not operating as not treating at all, you know. Um, and a lot of patients see it that way as well, unfortunately. Mm. Okay, well, I have asked all the questions I have to ask, but I'm welcome to anything further you would like to add at this point. No, I don't think so. Michelle? Well, covered a lot of ground, I think. Yeah, well, I'd like to thank you both so much for talking to me today and contributing to our podcast and recommend that all our listeners read your book, which I presume is now that we're out of lockdown going to be available in the bookshops. It is really um, very well written and very easy to read, I found. Um, and we will put a link to it on our website. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thank you.